Born James Stevenson Young in Scotland in 1928, Lee's mother was a concert soprano and his father an amateur actor. Lee became stage-struck at a very early age, fascinated by his father's makeup box and collection of false beards. After an extensive career globally, Lee settled in Sydney in 1971 and quickly established himself as a much-loved and respected part of the show business fraternity Down Under, in theatre restaurant review and as a popular headline cabaret performer on the club circuit. As a theatre performer, his credits include Stepping Out, Blythe Spirit, King Lear, Dad's Army the Musical and Arsenic and Old Lace, where he toured with Gwen Plum and June Bronhill. Lee is a much-lauded member of the distinguished theatrical group, The Glugs, who in 2019 awarded him the Rodney Seaborn Lifetime Achievement Award. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Lee Young. When you look back on your life, what will you see? Will you see the kind of man you want to be? Will you know deep in your heart that you have tried To live with dignity, with passion and with pride? When you look back on your life, what will you say To companions who are with you on the way? Will you hold your head up high about the rest and will you know you've done your best upon the voyage of life some seas are rough there may be times your best may not seem quite enough but you must fight the storm just hanging on again you battle on when you look back on your life what will you find will it be that you discovered peace of mind and let it not be not what you won my friend but there that you've lived your life with love. Well, it is a gorgeous day in the mountains today. Um, how long have you been uh, up here? Just six years, almost exactly. And peaceful, I would imagine. Well, compared to where I was living before at King's Cross, yes. Oh, right, you're right in the middle of the hustle. Right in the middle of it. I lived opposite the fountain, the famous fountain at King's Cross. Alamant. Yeah, Yeah, Al Alamant Fountain. So this is sublime to the ridiculous here. Right, right. And also quite away from where you grew up. Well, I grew up in Glasgow, in Scotland, and left there when I was 15. So the climate would be a bit different as well, I guess. Well, Although you've returned to a cool I've climate. I've returned guess, to a cool yeah. climate. Yeah. And strength of, I've returned to my address, 12 Thorpe Street. I was born in 12 Segalee Road in Glasgow. 
really? So I'm back to number 12. Oh, there's something in that, isn't there? In, in your view, into numerology. Yeah. Speaking of numbers, you recently celebrated your 92nd birthday. Happy birthday. Sadly, yes. <laughs> Does it feel like 92 years? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and people are very age conscious. They say, oh, what age are you? I said, I never tell a lie. I'm 28. And they say, ha-ha. I said, I'm a 28 baby. I was born in 1928. That's my age. My 28-year-old Absolutely. You can do the baby. maths. Let them do the maths. Let them work it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lee, you're, if we can talk locally for a minute, you're a much lauded member of the distinguished theatrical group, the Glugs. And in, in March uh, 2019, they awarded you the, the Rodney Seaborn Lifetime Achievement Award. That must have been a thrill. Uh, yes, it was quite a surprise. And I didn't really want it because all these awards are obituary. And they only once, so I think they thought I was going to be dead before the, the awards came up. <laughs> so that's still here. But um, John Bell actually presented it to me at Masonic Club in uh, Sydney Castle Ray Street. That's where it was presented to me. And I couldn't really believe it. <laughs> Tell the listener what the, the glugs are. They're a, a theatrical group who like not, going to the theatre. No, they weren't. Th no, yeah, they weren't. Originally, it was a journalists' club. All the top journalists used to meet for lunch on a Monday at Johnny Walker's, which is now gone. It's now the City Recital Hall, I think. Right. But that's where we used to go, and uh, we'd be about average twelve of us in the lunch hour. There was one or two actors like myself, but not many. It was mainly for journalists. And we would have one guest come to lunch who would be an overseas star. And of course the agent always said, you must go to the Glugs because they're your critics. So of course we had all the big stars. We had the Judy Dench and Every big star you can think of. At the so, time. the touring to Australia in a play or a musical or whatever they were concert. doing, yeah. they were just here. Right. So, they always made sure. But now, of course, it's a lot different because journalists have all changed, and they don't have that same lunch hour. It's in, the business is so different. So, now, it's open to. Anyone that goes to the theatre, any lover of the theatre can go to Glugs, which is not quite the same because they don't really talk the same language. You get people that are interested in theatre, but they're not part of it. Yeah. And so they struggle now to get people to come along. And I, st I still go when I can, but to go from here... Uh, it's a five-hour day on the train to get there and back, but I still go um, maybe three times a year. But we used to be weekly, now it's bi-monthly. Mm. So it's a lot, lot different. 
And unfortunately, I think organisations like the Glugs will probably be on a bit of a hiatus in the, yeah. the current climate with COVID. Well, Did you ever think you'd see a, a moment like this in, in world history? Oh, yeah. yeah. The moment is here. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot different. You were telling me over a cuppa before that you felt it was very much like World War Two, similarly, although... Perhaps a little the bit present, the present time yeah, yeah. is very like World War II. I was in Glasgow, of course, still at school, but the schools never closed, the shops never closed. The only difference was rationing, very strict rationing, and also blacker. All your windows had to be blacked out or boarded up, and all the buses and trams had no lighting at all, no street lighting. That, that was different, but we still went to school. And even though, in my case, when the next houses in the next street to me were flattened and people killed, uh, still went to school the next day. I suppose the difference being that the enemy was over there or, or watching us, whereas now the enemy is could be within yeah. any of us. And uh, and we don't know from day to day when it's going to finish. No. So it's uh, since some, some ways it was, uh, people are dying, but they were killed before. Now they're dying oh. of natural cause as well. Virus. Were you a good student? No. no. Hated school. Did you? Hated it. Did you become the class clown or anything like that? Or were you an introvert? Or? No. I was a bit, yeah, I was introverted. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't... Uh, I don't know what I was good in some subjects and hopeless in for instance maths, forget it. And two and two was my limit. My geography and English I was fairly good. But I was I hate, still hated school. You find that a lot with performers, don't you? A lot of them can be introverts, but given an audience and a stage yeah. and, a, and a spotlight. It's even now at a party for instance all the time I've been in this business, uh, people say, oh, give us a song. I've never, ever once done anything at a party, which upsets people. I cannot get up and sing without a rehearsal. No, you can't to me, like I've never done it. Some people do. Some people have enjoyed doing that. I just could never do it. And I've upset many people. You think you've gone big time. So it's just, to me, it's a job. It's like a nine-to-five job. You do it when you're paid for it and you're doing it in a theatre. Hopeless. I was never good at rehearsals. Eventually I got it, but I've never liked rehearsals. And I was always better on the first night. I used to come up smelling roses on the first night of anything. I used to walk away with a lot of shows on the first night. The adrenaline really hit me then. Well, the performance is finally completed when the audience is present. Yeah. yeah. And of course, every show you do, particularly a one-man show, which I've been doing the last few years, it changes every night with the audience. It's a different audience, different vibes. And usually within five minutes, you get a connection, whether they're with you or not. Yeah. And that makes it harder. 
Yes, although it's the same blocking and the, the same routine every night, you're, you're navigating it, never the, aren't you? You're listening yeah. to sort of fine-tune as you go along. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly with a, a one-man show. Yeah. You're only an only child, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. What did mum and dad do? Uh, my father was a textile agent at an agency for textiles. Uh, my, my mother... Uh, was a housewife, but she used to sing in the church choir. She was a singer, a beautiful singer, but no confidence. She would never do it professionally. Terrible. Her nerves were impossible. My nerves are not good. I'm nervous for every show that I've been doing for over 70 years now. I'm still a little bit nervous before every show. Mm. My father was an actor for a few years, in Glasgow with uh, the Glasgow Players Club and got an offer to go to the West End, but his father wouldn't let him go. So he never stopped me going when I said I wanted to go to London. In these days, going from Scotland to England was a big deal, not like nowadays. And But he said, my father stopped me, so I'm not going to stop you, but don't come back and ask for any money. <laughs> which I never had to do. My God, I struggled. Yeah. And these days we went to London twice nightly in touring variety shows, travelling every Sunday in blacked out trains and to find digs once a week we were going. Um, there were very hard times, but you still loved what you were doing. I guess you couldn't book ahead accommodation, could you? You'd have to arrive in a... Well... If you had friends that were also variety performers, they would give you a address of where they stayed the last time or tell you not to go to a certain place. Because there were lots of theatrical landladies, weren't there? Yes, there was theatrical digs. Nobody else, there were all theatrical digs. Um, My worst experience was at Bradford Alhambra. I hadn't booked any digs, but the stage doorkeeper used to have addresses. So I rang the lady and said, um, I'm at the Alhambra. She said, oh, yes, uh, do you want full board or bed and breakfast? I said, no, have full board. I said, what's your name, love? I said, Lee Young. What's that? Lee Young. I'm not having any bloody Chinaman in my house. Oh, Put the phone down. No. I've never forgotten it. No. Did that come up much in your career, um, that people thought that you might have been yes, Asian with a name like Leah? many times. Because yeah. you were christened James Young, weren't yes, you? Yes, I changed my name in 1945 when I was at the Windmill Theatre and got engaged to a Chinese girl. It was very unusual in these days. That was head-turning. Yes, that, uh, that cross-cultural relationship. Yeah. yeah. Her name was Moi Wong. And we started a double act, so it couldn't be Moi Wong and Jimmy Young. <laughs> so it became Moi Wong, and we decided Lee Young. Yeah. And it, I went into the army that broke up that relationship. But when I came out, I still kept Lee because the agents knew me as Lee. So I've been Lee ever since. I didn't, didn't change it back to James. There was another Jimmy Young at the time, quite big in England anyway, so... So you didn't want to compete with that? It wasn't a good idea. No, no, no. 
I believe that um, you were first alerted to performance through a fascination with your dad's makeup kit and false beards. Yes, and these days, when he was acting, did not a small, a huge, heavy square box on three levels with grease paint and beards and uh, spirit gum, false eyebrows, and I was always fascinated with this. I didn't want to play with toys and cars and engines. I wanted to play with a makeup box. That was when, from the time I was five. So it's, uh, that was the artistic side of my talents came from my father, who was very, very similar to me in every way. Uh, and he, he would have been very good actor. I've got rave notices that he got from way back then. I've still got notices that he got when he was doing a lead in various plays in Glasgow. Were you having singing lessons and dance lessons as a, as a boy? No. no. I had dancing lessons, yes. Uh, when I was 13, and after a year of lessons, I was ready to go to Hollywood. <laughs> of course you were. I had to go. And what happened was actually, um, ENSO was going at the time, which was ENSO, a group of professional performers that toured all over the world, entertaining the, the troops wherever they were. At Tommy Trinderall was said, ENSO stood for every night something atrocious. <laughs> for some <laughs> terrible performers. Really? But never. So the agent, whose name was uh, Joe Collins, who in actual fact was Joan Collins' father, was the agent for ENSA, came to Scotland to audition people in Glasgow. And of course that was all in the newspaper, so I decided I'd take a day off school and go and audition for ENSA. So I actually did very well. They said, oh, yes, you're great. Joe Collins said, you're too young at your age, but I could give you a job in England because we're very short of male dancers that are all in the army. So he said, if you would come, I was only 16, he said, I can give you a job straight away. So I went back to school. Um, I hadn't told my parents I was going for an audition. I told them that they said, you can't go to England, so I'm going. And eventually they didn't let me go on and I went to London and started rehearsals for a review the very next day. Because they were so short of young male dancers. Was that the one at the Gaiety Theatre? Uh, no, that, yeah. was, that was different. Right. That was, no, that was, um, the Gaiety Theatre was my first job when I was still at home at right. school. I worked with a man called Stefan Grappelli, a violinist. And uh, that was in the Gaiety Theatre in Ayr in Scotland. Right. But I was still at school right. and did that at night. And then after the second month with him touring, I decided not to go back to school. And that's when I got the opportunity to go, went and audition for Joe Collins. And what was the review then that you made your debut in London? It was called In Civis Again. <laughs> right. It was supposed to be all 
members of the forces who have been demobbed. Uh, some medical reasons, some were due to be demobbed anyway. It was a mixture of uh, various age groups and strange performers. Uh, the, the leading lady was a drag queen called Pat Joyce, was Australian, and natural fact was very famous in Melbourne as a strongman, Wilfred Britton. Wilfred Britton was huge here and famous because he pulled a tram car and then Melbourne with his teeth. <laughs> so here he was in the civvies again, pulling a grand piano with his teeth across the stage in a pink chiffon frock and blonde wig. Was it a pretty, pretty drag or was he pretty hideous? No, supposed to be pretty. All right. He wasn't particularly, but he <laughs> thought he was. And um, as you say, I was checking up in the archives here and it was all true. He was very big here as the amazing Wilfred Britain. So that was all that was all true, which I doubted at the time. So what would have taken him to, to London? He just He was in the Air Force, I think, and had been right. demobbed there. Right, okay. Right, right, right. So you're you're working in the golden years of variety there and, and review. It, it was it was still variety was so very big then. Yeah, yeah. D- for the listener, define what a variety show is. It's uh, well, true variety is like they call vaudeville in America. It's, it's variety, really. And every town in Great Britain had at least one or two theatres, every single small town. And there would be the legitimate theatre and would be the variety theatre that had a different programme every week. And you did twice nightly, there'd be seven acts would be one star name uh, who did only about half an hour at the most and six supporting acts that did about 12 minutes each and could they be sight acts or novel anything acts, right? all hence, sorts of acts hence pulling a and a live band so you took your own music obviously with you and you had the rehearsal on the Monday morning and you opened that night, and you did um, usually 12 shows a week, sometimes 13 if you had a matinee. But it was hard going. Some of the digs were really dreadful Mm. because they weren't very expensive. You were only earning, when I first started, I think I got, when I went to London, about seven pounds a week, like $14 a week. You to feed yourself, buy your own tap shoes, buy your own clothes, and you to pay, pay for your transport. Pay for your transport. So, you by the end of the week, you had nothing left, literally. What I did for love. Exactly, and <laughs> it was, and you didn't mind. That's all you knew. Kids today have no idea if they break a fingernail, they have a show off. It was no show, no, no pay, no show. If you didn't have a show, you got no pay. That was it. All right. Under any circumstance, even if you were sick, that was it. You just didn't get paid. What was Victory Parade? Oh, that was when I was still in, in Scotland at school. That was they just called it that because we were 
doing, hoping for victory to come soon. It didn't actually come. That's quite a season, 26 weeks and twice nightly. Yeah, but a different programme. Right. You rehearsed, you rehearsed in the morning, did the show at night, entirely different every Thursday night. The show changed. It's, people can People now complain about doing an extra matinee. We, t- we rehearsed every single day and did the shows at night. And you'd organise costumes every week. You'd try and scrape things together. Your own costume? Oh, your own costume. Yeah. Unless they'd have... Sometimes if there was a production show... It was still called Variety, but a production show. If you did that, they would have to supply a costume. But usually, touring Variety, everything you did yourself. And wartime too, so resources are pretty minimal, I guess, also. And actually, um, when I opened at the Gaiety, again, still at school, at 15, um, the Palladium in Edinburgh really was a third-rate, hideous, terrible theatre. It's gone now. And these sort of survived on bar takings because seats were very cheap. And the guy that delivered the all the liquor for the bar was Sean Connery. <laughs> he was the delivery man. So he hadn't started acting yet? No. I think one of his first roles was in South Pacific, wasn't it? Was he in the chorus? That was his only stage role. Right. Yes. He was in the because he was he went to the gym and he was a muscle man, and he went to London to join a gymnasium there, and the directors and went to look for muscle men for the chorus of South Pacific. They didn't have to sing; they had the just had to look for the, them. and that's where he that's where he started. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And then he's nabbed by Hollywood and becomes James Bond and the rest yeah. is history. Yeah. The Windmill Theatre, you worked there for a while. The it's famous a, Windmill. I went there when I finished um, in Civis again. Um, I auditioned for the Windmill and got the job. Uh, it was the only theatre in London that never closed, of course, during the war. Five shows a day. You got there at nine in the morning to rehearse and then you started at ten with the first show and left at midnight. So it was five shows a day. Um, there the show lasted five weeks. So while you were doing the five shows a day you were rehearsing for the next show that changed in six weeks time. But um, and that changed eventually, went over to, I think they went over to six shows a day, but every other day they had two companies doing the same show. That's what, I, when they eventually closed, that's what they were doing. They so had two companies doing the same show, but they worked every other day. So were performances interrupted by the air raids? Oh, oh yes. And bombings? Oh yes. Yeah. So well, they... A windmill got an indirect hit. Uh, there was one girl very badly injured, Joan Jay, uh, and all the ceilings and everything came down in the windmill. 
So you, you yeah. had to stop the show yeah. and tell the audience yeah. to leave quietly? And I, I wasn't there before. You weren't there the time. Just before I went. The war, yeah. was, the war was actually over. By the time I got there, the war was just over, but it was still the only theatre open. Right. I'm thinking of that terrific film with Judy Dench. About yeah. The I didn't like it because it wasn't, not it was rubbish again. Right. Well, of course, theatrical license. Yes. A lot of it wasn't uh, wasn't true. Right. Theatrical license. Yeah. A spell in the National Service you had? I went in in 1946. And how I remember it was sort of dates confused me. But at the windmill, my last show there was his tricks, his tricks, here we are in 46. So I know it was 47 with <laughs> the army. Yeah. And by that time, that same year, I had started an act with Moy Wong. Uh, so, so much happened sort of during that time. Did you keep in touch with Moy Wong? Well, we, we fell out completely. Right, that, okay. That didn't work out at all. When, when I left and went to the army, that was, that was the end. But we were working dreadful clubs in the West End, the real sleazy club we went on at midnight, and we toured around with a comedian called Tommy Cooper. Just like that. He was he was the compere, really? and we were the act, and our pianist was Miff Ferry, who was also his agent. All his life till he died, Miff Ferry was still Tommy Cooper's agent. Those great relationships which support each other yep, through, through yep, a career. Right through, yeah. You had a double act with Billy Chilmaid. Uh, oh, that was after I came out of the army. Right, okay. It was the first thing I did when I came out of the army. That was doing variety. We were a dancing act. Again, one of seven acts touring around. And that's where I met a lot of the stars for the first time. You would have a top of the bill that was a star, all the others would like we were, just supports. But that's when I first worked with Dorothy Squires, sensational singer, the greatest ever, I think, in England. We worked Vera Lynn, Dorothy Squires, Alfred Marx, Red Dixon, Peter Sellers. Um, they were all top of the bill and we were supporting. I, I read a, a chapter that you wrote describing watching Peter Sellers' early work, and he wasn't received too well. He sort of died, w- w- completely died. Yeah. That was at Southport, and by that time, I was doing a lot of radio. So was he. So I was sharing top of the bill with him, because you you would have instead of being one top of the bill, be split with two tops, and. Uh, I loved him, he was brilliant, but didn't connect with the audience. He was too subtle, way above their heads, and he used to walk off the sun of his own footsteps, just died. So look where he got eventually. Found his medium with, uh, with film. Oh, one of the biggest ever. Tell uh, me about the night you had with Marlene Dietrich. Well, that was, I was in the, uh, what was I in? Pardon my French with Winifred Atwell at the 
Prince of Wales Theatre in London. And her recording manager, Norman Newell, was a very good friend of mine, trying to get me to take singing lessons. And um, on her opening night there, she could never be on her own. She always had to be around. So Norma had to go to the opening night. And after the show, she invited him to dinner at Dorchester. And, she said, and that time, he was with me that night. said, well, bring your friend with you. So, like, half past one in the morning, I arrived at the Dorchester with him to visit Marlene Dietrich. And when we arrived, she was lying on the floor in leopard skin pants, long before Maria Van Newt ever wore them, <laughs> and listening to a record that she was carried away with and looking sensational. Her hands were a bit of a worry. They were the giveaway. But other than that, she looked sensational. And then we talked to half past seven in the morning All right, she talked the entire time she wouldn't have known who I was she talked the entire night about herself and you felt it was all rehearsed you wonder how many times has she done it before so she stopped once only to answer a telephone call from an astrologer an astrologist in America who was also the Queen Mother's astrologist or astrologer to ask about whether she should do a next contract or not. It's the only time she, she stopped. Bizarre. Which is very, very odd. So, so um, she perhaps was an insomniac who just needed company. Or she needed company, yeah. always needed company. She could never get through the night on, on, her, on her own. So um, I went once again for dinner one after I'd been to see her show. She invited myself and I think one of that, a few of us went back. But that was just for a late night supper. But again, you see, she always had to have somebody there. She couldn't bear her own company. And the great Welsh actor Richard Burton was a mate. Yeah, well, he was, I didn't work with him. We were just we met up at a club or something one night, because then you had clubs, theatre people went to, and pubs that you went to. We met during that. We met there, and he was at the Old Vic in London. I was at the Prince of Wales, and we used to meet later night after the show and go and have drinks around in, in the late night pubs. And then, of course, and then I met Sybil, of course, his wife, because I was the excuse for him to be out late at night. So I was the excuse to Sybil. Sybil's always told he was with me, and that was all right. But then, eventually, we know what happened there. And I didn't see him for nine years because I didn't know who to stay friendly with. It's difficult, isn't Very it, when difficult you're to with a couple? So I didn't see Sybil or Richard till nineteen sixty-four. I never saw her again, but I saw him in sixty-four. It was the first time. You saw him on Broadway, didn't you? In uh, well, he, his opening night of Hamlet on Broadway. That was uh, 
not a very good production, but he, he did bad press, but he was brilliant. But Americans cannot do Shakespeare. And his sporting cast were Americans. And, but he was sensational. He always was, the voice was just one of the best ever, I think. The press described him as a very aloof man and not very tactile, but... Which is rubbish. You know, a different Richard. Absolutely rubbish. Maybe to them, because he didn't like them. He was never over front of the press. You went backstage to see him, though, after that? Yeah, that night I did, yeah. And it was like we'd met the day before. And of course, the first time I met Elizabeth Taylor, because she was in the dressing room. they just got married two weeks before in Canada. Um, and she was one of the most wonderful women I've ever met, the most glamorous ever, sensational, and intelligent, and listened to every word you said, never took her eyes off you, and remembered everything you had told her, and confessed a lot to me as well. So the beauty was extraordinary. Oh, breathtaking. At that time you were in New York because you were auditioning for... Auditioning for uh, a show called Robert and Elizabeth, uh, which was based on the Barretts of Wimpole Street. Huge success in the West End with John Bronhill playing Elizabeth. But if you go to a show on Broadway, if they transfer, even if you're a star, you still have to rehearse. Because if there's an American that can do it just as well, their equity is very strong. Anyway, we both had an audition. We both got the roles. I got the role of the eldest brother, and she had the lead again. But then the whole show got cancelled the next week because the royalties from the film company were going to be so high Slade Brown, the director, said, no, I'm not putting one up, cancelling the whole thing. So June was really stuffed. She went back to London, but the director kept me there to go and choreograph a show that wasn't doing very well. They wanted it re-choreographed, and so said, would you come and have a look at it? Which I did, and I got the job. Eventually, I was thrown out of America because I was doing it without a visa. Right. And I moved to Bermuda for six years. That was Hotel Paradiso? Yes. Yeah. Was um, Robert and Elizabeth to be given a new production for Broadway, or was the it English was, production going to be the same? It was exactly the same. Right, okay. But you had to the jump same through the hoops for the Americans. But the, for the Americans, they had to... It wasn't The script wasn't changed at all. It was exactly the same. But, um, again... Um, I think it would have been better with the original cast, but they couldn't do that. They weren't allowed to transfer the whole show. Yeah. It was initially John Clements. They did it with June in the West End. You had a long working relationship with comedian Frankie Howard, um, who I adore. I think seven years. Seven years. So, so you were the feed to his comic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What What does a feed do? A feed's the guy that you give them the line that leads up to the tag. Right. So they depend on you a lot. Yeah. yeah. Timing is very important. Can you be taught timing? No. Learn timing? No. It's innate. People say, yeah. people say you can. You can't. It's like people going to singing lessons say you're a great singing teacher. You can't learn to sing. 
if you haven't got a voice, if you've got a voice, if you're born with a singing voice, you can be trained how to use it. But if you just can't sing, if you no ear for music, you cannot learn to sing. It's often been said by a lot of those great comics that off stage they're quite introverted and, and so Most of them, troubled. everyone I knew, Frank Howard particularly, yeah. completely different. Um, now, Dick Emery was different. Dick Emery would have a pair of prop false teeth in his pocket. And if anybody came to talk to me, he would stick the teeth and do a character. So he was always on? Always on. <laughs> great f- friend, a great guy, but always on. Frankie Howard hated meeting people. He shied away all the time. So he was a shy man? Completely, yeah. yeah. Yes, he, he hated being recognised. Almost a hat on pulled over his eyes. People still recognised him. And if he spoke, of course, he was polite to them, but he hated it. Was he a funny man off stage? In a different sort of way. Right. Much more subtle off stage. But uh, it was very over the top on stage, but the voice was the same. He still had the same voice, but he just exaggerated when he was on stage but he still sounded the same and i guess like what you described a little bit earlier you'd go to a party and people would say sing us a song lee Never. i suppose he'd go somewhere and they'd say tell us a joke frankie be funny make us laugh no which is the worst thing worst you thing you say to him yeah yeah i remember one thing it wouldn't mean probably much to australian listeners but there was he did a show called variety bandbox which ran for years, and he used to invite the cast back to his place for supper at night, and it was different guests every Sunday. So the guests he would invite along, and there was a double act told Jeanette Hamilton Smith and somebody Hargraves, well-known opera singers. So they were invited along. So Frankie, when I got back, was not a good host. There's tons to eat and all the drinks having help yourself. And Jeanette Hamilton Smith felt that Frankie sort of maybe had ignored her. So he went she went up and said, Oh Frankie, and I'm, I'm Jeanette Hamilton Smith. He said, This is no time for apologies. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. Then carried on. But he would never have told a joke, ever. He would chat to people, very intelligent actually. Mm. He was one of these pseudo-internet intellectuals get you in a corner and question you about politics and the war and everything. So entirely different personality off stage. What was Benny Hill like? I got on with him very well, but he was a closed book. Nobody really knew Benny Hill. No, it was great to work with. I got on very well with him, but um, he, he he didn't talk anything about himself at all. Nobody had any idea really what he was all about till the day he died. And he earned a fortune, but he lived in a tiny little he flat. Lived, he yeah, quite minimalist till he till he died. He still had that, and must have been worth squillions when he died. 
I didn't see him again after I worked in Sydney with him. I think it was about 19... With Benny Hill show, yeah. 74, I think. Terry Thomas you worked with, didn't you? Yeah. That was the year I came out of the army at Bournemouth. Um, Terry Thomas and Ralph Reader. Ralph Reader was the director. He was instigator of a scout gang show. Uh, that was Ralph Reader. He wrote all the music of the gang show. It was his show. And he, but this time he, um, he was directing the show with um, Terry Thomas. And that was, we were, I think, in Bournemouth for about seven weeks, I think. That was interesting. He was great to get on, on with as well. Funny man. Yeah. You gave up performing for a while due to work some health issues and work yeah, in the box that office. Was, it was, that was when it happened. Right. It was Terry Thomas rang me to the doctor in London because having problems and it just said you've got to you've got to start performing. It was uh, it was chest bad chest problems. So I didn't want to completely give up theatre. I could still work but I couldn't perform. So I got a job as assistant box office manager at the new theatre in London and then became box office manager. Till I got well. So it was a form of emphysema? Yes. Were you a smoker? Never. Really? Wow. See, people think emphysema's got nothing to do with smoking. It doesn't help, obviously. But I've never smoked in my life, ever. But, of course, working in theatres in these days, everyone smoked in the theatre. And, of course, you were breathing smoke in every night. So there was no, everybody smoked all through a show. Well, that passive smoking. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you need your lungs, don't you, if you're going to sing and dance? Yeah. yeah. And they've never been right since. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world. Or never be long I've gotta be me I've gotta be me What else can I be But what I am I want to live Not merely survive and I won't give up this dream of life that keeps me alive. I've gotta be me. I've gotta be me. This dream that I see makes me what I am. Let far away prize a word of Success is waiting for me if I heed the call. I won't settle down or settle for less. 
As long as there's half a chance that I can have it all, I'll go it alone. That's how it must be. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. I've gotta be free. I've gotta be free. Daring to try to do it or die. I've gotta be me. to work for the in the box office I didn't mind it and it was a, an Australian choreographer called George Carden who was huge in London he was the, the most famous choreographer in London but came from from Australia and he came into the box office to book tickets for the show that night and he said Lee Young he said what are you doing here Aren't you dancing? You knew I'd been a dancer. And I said, oh, I explained what happened. He said, well, can you work now? I said, yes, but I've got I could, if I get a job in London, I can still work. He said, good. In your lunch hour, come down to Victoria Palace. And if, if principal dancers' costumes fit you, you're in the show. You've got the job. <laughs> so I went down to the lunch hour, tried his costume. Of course they fit I made sure of that. <laughs> and um, went back, gave my notice, and started rehearsals the very next day. Unfortunately, the boy that was being sacked found out. And he walked out, and I had to start the next night and try and get through that choreography, that one of the worst nights of my life. Because I had to know, I, I, I saw the show once and trying to, the four dancers, uh, four male dancers, I was the sort of principal male dancer, I did the leading roles and eventually when I did leave, I was in, was there for a year, I was the crazy guy, Victoria Pass, and when I rang, an Australian boy took over from me whose name was David Hamilton but his name was actually McElroy, who was from multi-billionaire parents who owned a shipping line, right. McElroy's Shipping. And uh, he was in London as a dancer. He came back here, bought a hotel in Sydney, and also took over the shows at South Sydney Juniors Club as uh, David McElroy. And so, so it's funny that all these connections, all these years afterwards. Yes. Yes. So that was uh, 
I'm jumping ahead a bit, but it sort of knits together somewhere. Are you, are you superstitious in the theatre? A lot of people are. I'm not. Right. You don't have a, an opening night ritual that you go through? No. No. Lucky rabbit's foot? No. <laughs> no, nothing. It's, it's uh, yeah. workmanlike. Get there and get on with the job. Exactly. Uh, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a job. You know, you've, you don't get up at parties or go and do shows for nothing. You're a professional. That's, but I know other people, that, like another girl who became very famous. We were partners at one time on a radio show called Shaney Wallace. Shaney Wallace played the lead in the movie of Oliver. She oh, played Nancy and Oliver. And uh, we would go to parties together. You couldn't shut her up. She couldn't wait to start singing. And we had the same singing teacher at that time. But um, the people that do that, others just won't. You had it, um, Donna, Donna Lee never would. No. Donna's too professional. She has to know exactly what she's doing. Same as I am. To us, it's, it's when you're dedicated to something, you don't want to embarrass yourself. It's, you just you want to be professional. Yeah. You worked extensively in radio also. Oh, yeah. I've, years on radio. I was, I was in the Frankie Howard radio show for two years, every Sunday. I was on a show called Fine Goings On uh, with Dora Bryan and Freddie Mills, the boxer. I did, uh, I think, about three months every Sunday with them. Then I did a few one-offs, Saturday night. Um, shows like the Don Lane show was here about Graham Kennedy. They had nighttime variety shows on Saturday. I did a few of these as a single singer-dancer. Different medium to live performance, I guess. Oh, yeah. entirely. Yeah. You had that immediate connection you, with your You audience. always had an audience, of course. Right. These days, right. the theatre would be packed. But I, I still... Um, Microphones frightened me at first. I wasn't used to microphones, so uh, you were the tradition where you projected you the projected back of the theater, yeah? across the, an orchestra. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes you'd have foot mics or head mics, but nothing like chest mics, for instance. No such thing. Um, so I was always very nervous when I first started singing. And I remember the, the director saying to me, you treat the microphone as if you're singing into somebody's ear. Don't push. Sing as if you're talking right into the ear. And from then on, I learned how to use the microphone. The mic would do the rest of the work with yeah. the amplification. Yeah. But, um, I guess it provided you, a microphone provided you with great nuance that you, you couldn't really do in the theatre when projected. Not entirely. The songs you did, some, even these did pop songs you couldn't do without a microphone. You can do uh, musical comedy shows if I were a rich man or any visual from West Side Story, 
these were written for stage so you can't belt them out it's, it doesn't work when you get a pop song well some pop singers you wouldn't hear across a room but they're good on a microphone the 1950s would bring rock and roll along as a musical genre what did that do to variety um it didn't do any harm to variety then rock and roll singers started doing variety topping the bills i was the first rock and roll singer in england in 19 oh what was that 53 Four. i believe um about the middle of 50 i was still working in the prince of wales theater in part of my friends and i did the first record while I was there and I still believe I was the first in Britain to do it with a record called Rock 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 on Melodisc Records and with the Wolf Phillips and the Palladium London Palladium Orchestra backing me. Did it chart well? Uh, oh yeah um, at that time, it was too. Nobody knew about rock and roll. Right. A little bit too soon. Right. I'm gonna rock, rock, rock my blues away in a rock, rock, rocking chair. I'll just float on air, pretending that you're there. And while the old tick tock tick tocks away, I'll be lost the whole day through. Dreams of you and that you love me too. While the rocker is rocking, the clock is tick tocking. I find happiness sitting there, beaming, rocking, and dreaming of your warm caress. Gonna hope, hope, hope you'll come back home and say you really care. And rock, rock, rock each night with me in my rock, rock, rocking chair. I find happiness Sitting there beaming Rocking and dreaming Of your own caress I'm gonna hope, hope, hope You'll come back home And say you really care And rock, rock, rock It's neither with me In my rock, rock, rocking chair With me in my rock, rock, rocking By the end of the year, other people suddenly become quite big in rock and roll. Tommy Steele, of course, and quite a few others came up. But I was timing again. It was a rock. It was too soon. 
you didn't w- want, did that kill your your rock and roll career? You didn't want to go back and have a go again. I never really did it again. Right. I never went back to rock and roll. I I didn't really like it. Right. Particularly, it was just because my agent suggested that's what I should do. Let's see where we can capitalise. Yeah. Padamon, tell me about Padamon, because that's a, a great <coughs> English tradition and you featured a lot working with people like <coughs> Tommy Trinder and Rosemary Scott. My last pantomime in England was in a place called Sunderland. We did Dick Whittington and Tommy Trinder was the star of that. He was the comic, and I played Dick Whittington. I was one of the first male principal boys, it was always a girl. But because of pop singers on the radio all the time, started using men. And I think Frank Ifield and myself were two of the first to play Melbourne. So I played Dick Whittington with a girl called Rosemary Squires, who became quite big as principal girl with me. Well, that's a promotion because back at the Edinburgh Palladium, you were playing the cat. Cat, right? In Dick Whittington. It was. Took me years to be to become actually Dick Whittington. Dick Whittington, the the lead. And I, I did Principal Boy seven times. I played Prince Charming. I played Aladdin. I played Alibaba. Uh, Robin Hood three times. Dick Whittington twice. Um, but I, I think I did maybe 11 pantomimes, but seven as principal boy. Others were just other parts. For the listener who may not be aware, define what a pantomime is. Well, it's really really for children's, children's fairy story, done in the form of a variety show. And you had principal boys? The principal boy was usually a girl. Here, when they did it here, I think it was... Jenny Howard and Gloria Dawn when it was I think it was always girls here yeah and then there were dame roles as well the, the dame was usually a male comedian and very seldom I think it was only one woman in England ever played female dame was always a male so it was usually a male a female principal boy and a male dame for years and years. You had a period in South Africa. What, how did you move to South Africa? I went over to the show called Those Were The Days. Uh, I was just booked, my, my agent was looking for someone to co-star in a variety music show with Mrs. Mills, who was a pianist who couldn't read a note of music. Really? Fabulous woman, could not read a note. And even when she was starring in England, big, on, on radio all the time, big star, she still kept her day job at the tax office because she didn't believe it was happening to her. She thought, any day now it's not going to happen, so I better keep my day job. And she, for a long time, she still had the day job at the tax office. So what did the show can consist of? Just Mrs Mills at the piano mm-hmm. and... Uh, no, we had an orchestra, and uh, only four chorus girls, four dancers, magician, um, 
another double comedy act. It was it was just a, like, like a, a variety, like a they had here in the clubs, you know, production shows like they had here. Did you work on Queen Mary's final voyage? Yes. The Queen Mary's. The, the, the Queen Mary one and the QE two. The QE one. I did both the last voyages. Right. Which was it all seems like a dream now. And I was booked to do the opening on the QE2, but I had a motorbike accident and couldn't do it. But I did eventually do it with Count Basie uh, in the West Indies. By that time, I was I was able to, to book me back again to do three months in the West Indies with them: um, Count Basie, Donald O'Connor, Sarah Vaughan, Sid Therese. So that was still exciting. So when did you arrive in Australia and what brought you to Australia? A cruise again. Right. Um, um, I was brought up by a man called Johnny Ladd who used to write the scripts for Paul Hogan and Graham Kennedy. And he was involved with, I think it was called In Melbourne Tonight. Was he an Englishman? Yes. Yeah. And I'd worked with him over the years in England. And I'd always said to him, if anything, I'd love to come to Australia. Uh, I'm a bit, I was doing cruising at that time. I said, I'm a bit sick of cruising, but I'd love to come over and do a show. And about a month afterwards, he phoned and said, I've got a job for you. You have to get here by Christmas Eve because we're starting rehearsals. You have to be here by then. So uh, I flew over, got myself here, and when I got here to start rehearsal, I found it was for a cruise ship. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't believe it. But the thing was, because of that, I met all my old friends here, like the Tapano family, Judy Stone, Dave Gray, because I'd worked, Dave Gray supported me in Variety in England. He was my opening, I paid him, I think, £12 a week. But he wasn't ugly Dave Gray then, he was just Dave Gray. And his bill matter, in these days you had what you called bill matter under your name to say what you were. And it was Dave Gray, always gay. Of <laughs> course, Completely different connotation in these days. Absolutely. And I've still got the poster on my wall in there. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> and he never forgave me. For reminding people. For reminding me. And in <laughs> TV Week magazine, they came, did a story on me, and they used that poster. <laughs> so a lot of your early work in Australia, other than the cruise ship, was, I guess, in theatre, restaurant, and more of you? Yeah, I, I, yes. On and off, I did seven years at the Music Loft. Um, I closed the Music Loft as the last show into the Music Loft. I was the last show at the Bull and Bush on William Street. I was the last show at the Roxy in Brighton and Sands. I closed them all. <laughs> I had so um, I wrote and directed them. But, uh, so a lot of my, 
and even a spelt league girls. I took her from Carlotta, walked out at one stage, and I went and took her as leading lady. So you did drag? For three months in drag. So again, the agent I had then said, you'll make it respectable because you don't wear drag during the day of some a man doing an act. But they all hated me there. I hated the show, but I was earning a lot of money. Um, that's why I went. But I managed to get out of it when Peter Williams offered me another job. So I was able to leave and, and go and do a show for him. You, you had a job which, which I think is the envy of many, uh, the ringmaster at Stardust, Las Vegas City Ring Circus. Yeah, that was set, it was called Stardust Las Vegas Three Ring Circus, which was dancers, animals, ice skaters, and acrobats. Fabulous show. Uh, at Wentworth Park, here, died completely, but it was the hottest summer we've ever had, and under the, the tent, the heat was unbearable. And by the second show, we did two shows a day, the skaters, the ice had melted. The skaters couldn't work. So that was that was a very, very strange time. It was such a fantastic show, nothing like it had ever been seen in, in Australia. Wow. So, uh, and a, a guy by the name of Stephen Bourget put it on. He was marketing manager for shopping centres in Sydney, but had worked with me on the ships, on the Cooey Tour and the Franconia years before. It was Australian, came back here and started to do, do part-time stuff and ended up doing this. He now has a cinema in Kingscliff. Again, somebody of not quite as old as me, but still around the around the 80 mark, still working seven days a week. See, we did in these days. Yeah. You know, you didn't wait for labour exchange to give you money, you worked. So, so in, in near 70 years, about 70 years of performance, yeah, you've been performing. Close to 75 now, I think. What's, what's the biggest change you've noticed in entertainment in your lifetime? Oh, in Australia, definitely when... Uh, the clubs started closing. That was the biggest change, of course. The clubs here was as big as Vegas. They had so many clubs. And uh, when I first, you could work five clubs a week and three on a Sunday. Suddenly, they started poker machines and drink driving, and the clubs were closing one after the other. That was the biggest change. People. They, the Barry Crockers and the Tapanas, in these days, Kamal became millionaires in the clubs, but that's all gone. You didn't even pay to go to see a show in a club. So that, that was a, and it happened very quickly. Now there's, I think, seven clubs that do any entertainment at all. It's, it's very sad. Well, let's hope that life is cyclical and that that, that, that club scene will come back. No, I don't think so. It'll never come back. No, it will never come back.
if the clubs came back in these days the clubs they didn't have seven television programs to watch to compete mm. and the kids now have all got they call bluetooth or something you plug into they they don't go they watch everything on top they've got seven programs to watch and also they'll go somewhere where they can gamble poker machines well poker machines went into the pubs which is the biggest mistake ever so people that used to go to the clubs started going to the pubs to gamble and um, it's that's never going to come come back Lee, we've barely scratched the surface of your extensive career, but um, thank you so much for sharing those anecdotes today. They, they really mean a lot. They're, they're fascinating, and, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be equally stimulated by what Well, I hope say. so. It bores me to tears. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you ever think of writing a book? Uh, many people have written books, but they don't read books anymore. Like John Mellon, who was a very close friend, um, June Salter, Gwen Plum, they all wrote, but every one was scrapped. They didn't sell. The only people who remember who was on television last night, they just don't buy books anymore. So I thought, well, I'm not going to write a book and it'll cost, cost me money to do it because you have to do it yourself. Mark Christian is writing a book with an entirely different thing is writing the history of clubs, solely clubs, and it's he's really gone into it, every fine detail. But that book will sell in the clubs. They'll be able to people interested in the history of the clubs. It's all there. Indeed, he's really doing a fantastic job. But that is strictly for the clubs. It's not for bookshops. Thank you for your many contributions to uh, entertainment in Australia and thanks for the chat today. Well, as long as I didn't bore you. Isn't he an extraordinary gentleman? A true gentleman of the theatre and as passionate about it today as the very first time he walked onto a stage. My thanks to Mark Christian and the Golden Years of Variety Facebook page for the background profile of Lee. Mark was very enthusiastic for stages to record a conversation with Lee and I am so grateful that he suggested that. We hope to sit down with Mark at some point too to reflect on the vast club circuit and variety history in Australia. He's presently working on a book and we eagerly look forward to its publication. Curious to know more about variety, particularly in Australia? Do check out the Golden Years of Variety Facebook page. There is a wealth of fascinating history of performers and acts and venues to devour. Next time on Stages, we talk with Tony and Academy Award-winning costume designer, Tim Chappell. It's a very special conversation, and I look forward to your company next Thursday. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.